You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. I'm going to be reading Acts 2, 14 through 41, Peter's Sermon. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servant and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosened the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David said concerning him, I foresaw, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out on this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies of your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you, re you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Great. Thank you, Rose. Well, keep your place there in Acts. We're going to look in just a moment at Acts chapter 1. Last year, as we got back to school, back to school time last September, of course, that was all pre-COVID, but we got back to school and we had a, what, an eight-week sermon series called Back to the Book. We're going back, we're back, kids are back to school, we want to go back to the book, and it was a series thinking about what the Bible teaches us and why the Bible is so important for us. Well, I kind of like that, back to school, back to the book, and I decided we're going to do it again. I want to go back now, though, this time, a new series entitled Back to the Basics. Back to the Basics. You know, the basic things, I think there's a couple things we can say about it, basic things are the big things. They're foundational. They are fundamental to what we are as a church. The basic things are big things. When I was 9 or 10 years old, my cousins bought a little dirt bike, a little Honda 80 or something like that. I'm sure John Ewan could tell us the serial number um, off the top of his head. But it was a little Honda 80. It was red. It had a black seed. It went to, you know what it is. So, and, and they took it to my grandma's house. My grandma had a house out in the country, lived over in Holland, Michigan, and so... Our cousins were a little older than me, and they kept this little dirt bike at my grandma's house. And when we would go over there, uh, I would usually ride on the back of the dirt bike with one of my cousins. Well, eventually I got old enough, and my mom got brave enough, that was the main thing, to let me try it out. We're going to try out this dirt bike. And so they sit me on the bike. I, I know how to ride a bicycle, never ridden, never ridden a motorcycle. And so they sit down, and here's the throttle, and you, you do this to make it go. And I said, well, where's the brake? And the brake's down here. Okay, no problem. So I get on this dirt bike, big an open field behind my grandma's house, and I get on and I start up and it kind of takes off and I take off and faster, and it's just just revving and pretty soon I'm screaming through the field and I, and I don't you know I'm terrified I don't know what's going on I'm stepping on the brake I finally slam my foot on the brake the bike stops it's still running I get off put the kickstand down everyone comes running up and they're like what are you doing why are you going so fast and I said well how do you slow it down. I said, what do you mean, how do you slow it down? I said, well, you told me how to make it go, but you didn't tell me how to slow it down. I said, well, you, you make it go this way, and you make it slow down this way. I'm like, ah, that makes sense. You should have told me that. That's, you know, if you're going to ride a motorcycle, you need to know how to make it go, and you need to know how to make it slow down, right? That's just kind of basic. Making it go, making it stop, that's just the basic things are the big things. The things you need to know, the things you need to understand that are important for what you're doing. You know, often the basic things are also the beginning things. They're the things that you learned first, the things you go back, and when you're, when you're learning something or getting involved in something, it's the basic beginning things that you need to know. Uh, my youngest brother uh, just started a job as uh, the varsity girls coach at Birch Run High School, which is up in southern Saginaw County. And uh, last year they won five games. Uh, not a very good team. And so he, uh, and it's, they can't practice yet, but they can have workouts with small groups of people. And so when he started working out with them, the things he started with were very complex plays and salary cap management. No, he didn't start with any of that kind of stuff, right? This is how we dribble the ball. 
And this is how, one of the things he was telling me is, how do you get open, right? They stand there and someone guards them. He said, it's, it's, just, it's pretty straightforward, right? You walk into your defender, kind of stick your leg between theirs, and you step back real quick. They're like, well, you learn that. And yeah, he said, you've got to go back to the basics. Right? The basic things are the beginning things. It's the things we started with. It's the things when you first started your basketball clinic when you were nine years old, they taught you the basics. The basic things are the big things. And the basic things are often the beginning things as well. However, the basic things are also all too often the bypassed things. They're the things that we know are important, but we just end up neglecting them somehow. We know they're foundational. We know they're significant. They know they go to the very root, the very core of what we're all about, but we end up putting them off until later. Right? It's, that, it's like that thing you have in your house that you need to take out and get rid of, or that, that project that really needs to be done, and you see it, and you'll go, I'll get that later, and you walk by. Right? And sometimes you do that for months and months and months. It's significant, it's an issue, it's a problem, it needs to be dealt with, but we bypass it, we, we save it for later. And just think about your family life in general. Now, I don't know how it is in your family, but I know how it is in my family, and, and I think in lots of families. Think about what are the most important things to your life together as a family? What are the most important things in your marriage? Now, let me ask you, are those the things you spend most of your time on? The things that you would sit back in reflection and say, if I'm really thinking, if I'm really at my best, the most important things in my marriage are this, this, and this. Is that what you spend most of your time on? The most important things for our life together as a family, is, is that what you spend most of your time on? I don't know how it is in your family, but I know often in my family, it's like we just don't seem to be getting to the important things, the most basic things like we should. The basic things are the big things, and they're often the beginning things, but all too often, they're the bypassed things as well. And, and I think the same thing happens in church. The big things become far too often the bypassed things. And, and the place we need to go to be reminded of what those are and why they're so important, I think, is back to the beginning, which is why we're in the book of Acts. You know, usually as we do a sermon series, we're preaching through a book of the Bible expositionally, start at the beginning, work through some large section or work through the whole thing. We just finished up the book of Genesis. We were in Second Peter before that. We did Haggai back in the spring. For the next several weeks, though, we're not going to do that. We're going to spend a lot of time in the first part of Acts. We're not going to go through the entire book of Acts because I want to take time to think more broadly from Scripture what are the basic things, the big things, and how, are we clear on what those are, and are we focused on them and keeping them front and center? So Acts chapter 1. We'll be looking at a lot of the first couple chapters of Acts in the next few weeks because Acts begins where the Gospels end. Jesus has been crucified. He's risen from the dead. He is about to, right in the section we're going to read, starting in Acts chapter 1, he is about to return to heaven, and the church is about to begin. So we're going back to the beginning. We want to see what are the basic, what are the foundational, what are the big things. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. This is God's word. Well, in the first book, O Theophilus, that's Luke's gospel, part one of this two-part set, 
In the first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he'd chosen. And he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons. The Father is fixed by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And when he'd said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Well, let's pray. Father, I pray now you'd help us as we look at your word, as we think about these things, as we go back to the basics. Lord, we need much grace and much help. I pray that you would direct our minds, and, and not just our minds, but our hearts, that we would fall in love again, that we would get focused again, that we would, we would latch onto and embrace again the basic things, the big things that are so foundational to our faith and to our life together as a church. Lord, I pray you'd help us this morning. I pray you'd help us to focus on them. I pray that you would help me to, to speak of these things with the, the significance and the gravity and the, the seriousness that they deserve. And I pray that you'd help each of us here to listen to and receive them as from you, for your glory, for our good. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we look here at the beginning of the book of Acts, we see Jesus has returned to heaven. You know, his disciples, these apostles, have been on something of a roller coaster ride for the past few months. I mean, I think following Jesus for three years was crazy enough as it was. But then all of a sudden, they go to Jerusalem and he's killed. Now what, right? They're heartbroken, devastated. This is not how we thought this was going to end. He's dead. And then three days later, all of a sudden, reports start to trickle back. No, no, no. He's alive. He's risen again. And now they're overjoyed, and they're skeptical, and they wonder, and then they see Jesus, and they touch him, and they eat a meal with him, and they realize, no, the Savior, Jesus, he really is alive. And they're joyful and jubilant again. And he's with them for, for something like 40 days. And then says, oh, and now I'm leaving. And now they say, well, now what? Now what do we do? You know, when you were gone for three days in the grave, bad time for us. Didn't go well. We didn't know what to do. We were all in hiding. Now what do we do? And we see, first of all, he tells them in verse 4, okay, I want you to wait for the promise. That's the Holy Spirit. Wait for the promise and the power. We'll think about that next week. But then he goes on in verse 8, what's the power going to be for? What is it that they're supposed to do? He says in verse 8, when you receive power, the Holy Spirit's come upon you, you will be my what? Witnesses. What's our job going to be, Jesus? What is it we're going to have to do? We, you have to be a witness. That is, you have a message, something you have seen that you need to share. That's the task. That's what you're going to be waiting for. That's what you'll need the power for. 
the commission, the job, the role, the responsibility is you must bear witness to everything you've seen me say and do. That's their commission. That's their task. That's their big thing. When I was in high school, uh, our basketball coach, we had, um, uh, we had a play that we ran against a man-to-man defense. And we had a, some kind of motion offense we did against zone. We never ran that well. I don't remember it. Um, we had out-of-bounds plays, that sort of thing. But man-to-man offense, we had one play. Uh, and 25 years later, I still remember the play. The point guard brings the ball down. The forwards start up on the elbows. The guards start down to the blocks. The forwards go down and set picks for both the guards. They shoot out to the wings. Ball goes one way or the other. If it goes this way, the forward on this side sets a double screen for the wing on the far side. It's, I still remember the play. You know why? We only had one play. It was our only play. Now, there were lots of variations, right? You had to play that play smart. You didn't do it mechanically exactly. You had to execute. You had to rub off the screens tight. You had to set solid screens. You had to, timing had to be there. But, but you had to wait and see what the defense gives you. Sometimes he rolls off the screen. Sometimes the defense sags, so you pass it over top. There's lots of variations. It plays itself out in lots of different ways, but there's only one play. And we ran that play over and over. Now, you could mix it up because sometimes you ran it to this side and sometimes we ran the play to this side and it was a mirror image, but it was still the same play. We only had one play. You know, the church really only has one play. We really only have one play. It takes lots of different variations depending on the context it is in we're looking to see what the defense or the opposition is or isn't giving us, but we really only have one play. And our play is a message. In fact, we could say this, our main message is our main thing. Our main message is our main thing. That's what we have. The church does all sorts of things. It may invest in its community and the world in all sorts of ways. The church does all kinds of good, but we really only have one play. Our main message is our main thing. It's a message that we call the gospel. The gospel is our play. It means good news. And the good news message of the gospel is our main thing. It is our play. In fact, the scriptures tell us so. The apostle Paul, no less. If you keep a marker in Acts, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul says, to this church he had planted in Corinth in the south of Greece. He says, now I'd, I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel, that's the good news that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Did you see that phrase in there? Of first importance. Paul says, I received a message. I passed it on to you. It is a message of first importance. It is our main thing. And what is it? It says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas as Peter, and then to the twelve. Peter says, look, or Paul says, look, this is, this is the main thing. This is our big thing. This is the most basic thing of all. I received it. I passed it on to you. He doesn't say it here, but he expects them to pass it on as well. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again, and people saw it. We know it's true. There were witnesses. First importance. Our main message is our main thing. Our main message is our main thing. Now, if you've spent much time in church at all, this isn't new to you, right? This isn't new. If you came to church thinking, I hope I, I hear something this morning a little radical, a little unordinary, a little... This, this is basic. It's foundational. It's elementary. And that's right where the challenge for us lies. It's so familiar. It's so basic that we can easily start to assume it. Oh, everybody knows this. We can easily take it for granted. Well, of course, Jesus died and rose again. That's, that's, that's always what it's been. We can easily move on past it to other things that seem more significant to us. This is so basic. It's, in some ways, it's so simple. We say, there must be something more clever, more insightful, something more helpful than this. The problem, the challenge is for us, can we keep the gospel? Can we keep it clear? We know what it is. Anybody can say it. Anybody, everybody understands it. Can we keep it clear? Can we keep it central? Central to who we are as a church and what we're about and what we see our mission being and, and how we understand the way we live our lives. And can we keep it confidently? See, if we get fuzzy or if we get distracted or we get embarrassed about the gospel, we lose our power and we lose our purpose. And lots of churches get fuzzy on the gospel. They're not clear. They get distracted from the gospel, caught up in other things, not even bad things, just other things. And they lose their focus. Or they get embarrassed of the gospel in a world that usually doesn't like it. And we look for something else, something that's a little more popular, a little more palatable, something that appeals to people more. We lose our confidence, and then we lose our power. There are lots of organizations in the world that do good things. Not-for-profits, and in all sorts of organizations who go out and do things that help people. The church does many of those things too, and should. But the church is the only organization tasked with this most important message. Our main message is our main thing. If we stay laser-focused on it, God will do remarkable things. If we drift away from it, we will slowly become irrelevant and obsolete. It is the main thing we have. The challenge is always with us, and it always has been. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, look back at 1 Corinthians 1. Paul writes to this church, and he says some nice things at the beginning, but he gets to the problem pretty quickly. 1 Corinthians 1, 
and verse 10, he says, I I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. First, reported to me by Chloe's people, there's quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is each one of you says, well, I follow Paul, or, well, I follow Apollos, or or, I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or or, I follow Christ. Is this a Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Right? These people have gotten, they've gotten caught up in, in different teachers. All these teachers came proclaiming biblical and Christian truth. But there's factions. That, that Apollos was something else. That guy was sharp. I loved listening to him. Well, Paul, someone else says, Paul was here first. And I'm focused. Now, we all should be about. And there gets these divisions, these factions around different people. And Paul's saying, that, what are you doing? That's not the problem. Part of it is in Corinth, as in much of ancient Greece, there is a kind of wisdom lust. Who's the smartest? What teacher is the most impressive? I want to attach myself, connect myself to him. And Paul will have none of it. Look down in verse 18, or verse 17. He says, for Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. He says, I didn't come here trying to impress you with my fancy talk. I didn't come here trying to impress you with my eloquent speech. Like, that's where the power lies. Like, if only I can get better than I said, that's not. I came proclaiming Christ. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of, the, of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Why? Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Jews want signs, he says. Apostles, everywhere I go, I proclaim Christ and they say, prove it, show us. Show me a miracle, show me some sign of power because I'll believe power. He said, and when I go to a town and I speak to Greek people, they say wisdom. Hmm, more eloquent. I need something a little trickier, a little more complicated, a little fancier, a little more compelling than that. And so, verse 23, he says, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Paul doesn't say, I just got to get better. I just got to get better. I got to figure out better way. And he said, no, I just, I'm going to keep proclaiming. Because this message is foolish. Here's why. The cross, a crucified Savior, was unthinkable. Reading recently in Tom Holland's new book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the West. Fascinating book. Listen to what he says, though. He says, uh, not a Christian historian. He, he says, no death was more excruciating, more contemptible than crucifixion. To be hung naked, long in agony, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest, helpless to beat away the clamorous bird, such a fate, Roman intellectuals agreed, was the worst imaginable. This is even in peacetime, executioners would make a spectacle of their victims by suspending them in a variety of inventive ways. One perhaps upside down with his heads toward the ground, another with a stake driven through him, another attached by his arms to a yoke. 
Yet in the exposure to the crucify, of the crucified to the public gaze, there lurked a paradox. So foul was the carrion reek of their disgrace that many felt tainted even by viewing a crucifixion. The Romans, he goes on to say, couldn't have even countenanced this couldn't have come from us. This must have come from somebody else. Only the worst people, only the worst criminals, slaves, insurrectionists, would be subjected to crucifixion. It was unbelievably offensive. We don't even like to see it. And then the church comes, proclaiming a savior that's been crucified. The most shameful, brutal form of death reserved for the worst sorts of people, and Jews said, no way. There's no way the Messiah, the Savior King, comes like that. There's no way. And the Greeks say, there's, there's no way. How could a God, how could a God be crucified on the cross? But Paul comes to the Corinthians and says, chapter 2, verse 1, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, not because he couldn't. He could. He says, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul is laser-focused on the gospel and its message. I want anything to distract from it. I don't want you to suppose that people are embracing this faith, Paul says, because of my wisdom. No, I want it to rest on the power of God and a crucified and risen Savior. He is keeping the main message, the main thing. As he says in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Our main message is our main thing. And as we start off into this series on going back to the basics, more than anything else means going back again and again to this gospel message. You know, the gospel is more than an entry point into the Christian faith. It's more than some kind of technique or some procedure you have to embrace or recite to become a Christian. You know, when you start a new job, right, and you've got to watch all these videos, and they give you all these handbooks, and they give you all these papers, and, and then as you work that job, you keep going back to that stuff all the time, right? No, you don't. You get all that stuff, and you, th you know, toss it aside somewhere because you don't really need it for your job. That's not the way the gospel is in the Christian faith. The gospel isn't something that you get up front and you say, hey, are you good with this? Yeah, I'm cool with this. Okay, now you're a Christian, now you're good, and now we move on to the good stuff. Now, the gospel informs every part of our Christian life. Our main message, in an ongoing way, our main message is our main things. The gospel, rather, is like starting a new job saying, here's the tool you need. Keep it with you at all times. It is the main thing you need. And then we grab onto it, and we never let go. Our main message is our main thing. We could show all kinds of examples. This plays itself out in all sorts of ways. In almost all the New Testament letters, particularly Paul's letters, the first half of the letter is about the gospel. The second half is about what does that look like in life. We could look at all kinds of examples. I won't have you turn there, but, but think about uh, the Corinthian church. We could turn ahead to chapter 5. The Corinthian church is struggling because there's a member of the church who is involved in a terrible sexual sin. 
Paul tells them how to address it, but, but later in chapter 6, what he says is, hey, look, why should you not involve yourself in this kind of sin? Because you are not your own, you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. The Savior died for you. Where does the power and strength and motivation come? From the gospel itself. You are not your own. Christ has bought you to be his. Or, or think about marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul lays out what does it look like to live as a Christian husband and a Christian wife, and what does he base it on? In the way that Christ loved the church, and the church loves and follows Christ, right? The gospel itself becomes the metaphor for understanding what marriage is supposed to look like. Or think about interpersonal conflict, relational difficulty. That probably doesn't happen in your life, but some of us see that once in a while. And how do we deal with that? Philippians chapter 2. Don't, don't think more highly of yourself than you are, but think about the interests of others. Have the same attitude that Christ had. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ. And he talks, he goes on to talk about Christ, humbling self, coming to the earth, dying on a cross, right? What informs the humility that allows us to have healthy, forgiving relationships with each other? The gospel itself. We need the gospel for all of life. We don't move on to it. It's not the beginner tool. Right? It's not the little toy baby hammer that we give our little kids when, so hopefully eventually they're old enough to get something more advanced. Our main message is our main thing for all of life. Well, let's go back for just a moment to Acts chapter 2. Rose read this sermon earlier. This is the first Christian sermon. Right? The Holy Spirit has been given at this Pentecost thing. Uh, they're speaking in tongues. and Peter's going to try to stand up and explain Excuse me, explain what's going on. I just want to review this briefly as we think about what is the message he proclaims. Let me give it to you under four quick headings. The first one is God. We must understand something about God. As he begins, he says, no, what you're seeing here, these men speaking in foreign tongues they don't know, he says, they're not drunk. He says, this is what, verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. It says, in the last days it shall be, God declares. In the last days, how can God declare what will be in the last days? God can declare what will be in the last days because God has created this world and is guiding this world and is leading it sovereignly and wisely toward its purpose. At the end of this quote here down in verse 20, um, verse 20, it says, The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? This world has a God that rules over it. And he is holy, and he is good. But there's a day coming. He calls it the day of the Lord, the great and magnificent day, and we see clearly what that day involves. It involves judgment. Why? That's our second heading. If we think of God, a holy God who's created this world and owns it and guides it, and the second heading would be man or, or people, Right? Because it comes, verse 21, it should come to pass, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? Well, we might say, most simply, saved from sin, as the Bible often says, but we can say more than that. When we say saved from sin, what we really mean is saved from God. Because a holy God must punish sin. 
Sin is disobedience against him. It's rebellion against him. That's what we see in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3 in the garden. Adam and Eve rebel against God's rule and God's authority. They don't want to do it God's way. They want to do it their way. They don't want to submit to him. They want to be in charge themselves. That's how, the, that's how the serpent entices them. You'll be like God. You'll know. You won't need to take instruction from him. And every single one of us, every descendant of Adam and Eve has done just that. I don't mean that you're hostile against God. I don't mean that you have down with God political yard signs in your yard. I, I don't just mean that we, we want to go our own way. We want to rule our own lives. We don't want to obey God or submit to him. We certainly don't want to submit to a Savior on a cross. And the result is someday judgment. There will be a day of judgment when God will judge and every single person on that day will bring for themselves their own personal record of righteousness, and it will not be enough. It will not be enough. We won't be able to say, I tried my hardest, I did my very best, I did everything I could, I'm better than most of these folks. No, it won't work. All have sinned. And so what we need is salvation. And we see in verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does that look like? Our third heading, we had God, we have man. Now we think about Christ, right? Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. That's the name we need. That's the message we have. Peter summarizes, I won't read this all again, but look in verse 36. He finishes his sermon saying this, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. God has made him Lord. And in this context, this Jewish context, what they will understand Paul to Peter to be saying is, Jesus is God. He is God himself, God the Son. God has made him Lord and Christ. And Christ, that word, Greek word Christos, is, is from the Hebrew word uh, from we, which we get Messiah. They are looking for a king. They're looking for a savior, a descendant of David who will come and save them from the misery and oppression that they have suffered for centuries. Peter says, God has made Jesus Lord, and he's the Christ. He is the one that God has sent. God, he, Christ goes to the cross. This isn't the kind of savior they were looking for. They were looking for a king to come riding in to lead their armies, to destroy their enemies, to set themselves up as great again. You get that sense even back in the part we read at the beginning in Acts 1 where they say, hey, is now, is now the time? Are you going to set up the kingdom now, now, now? Right? And now, now we're going to win and drive out the Romans and set ourselves up in power? And Jesus says, no, 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 not yet. Not yet. You, you don't even need to know when that is. Your job is to be my witnesses, to make our main message the main thing. They're looking for someone to rule. Jesus comes to die. Jesus, the perfect sinless son of God, goes to the cross and dies, suffering the penalty for sins, not the sins he committed, he didn't commit any sins, but rather suffering himself as a substitute for the sins that all of those who will put their faith in him have committed. His death is sufficient to pay for the sin of any person who turns to him. That's the next thing. How do we respond? How do we respond to who Jesus is and what he's done? Verse 37, Peter finishes the sermon. It says, they heard this. They were cut to the heart. And they said to the Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. 
and that is turn from your sin. And by baptize, the point isn't so much there's something magical in this function, but baptism is, hey, now you need to believe in, associate yourself with Jesus. I'm with him. I'm following him. I'm going public as a follower of Jesus. How do we respond to this? We turn from our sin. We confess it before God. We believe in what God has done through Christ on the cross. And we say, I'm trusting in him. I'm following him. I'm I'm allying myself with Jesus now. He's the Savior. He's going to be the Lord. And the result, verse 41, those who received his word were baptized, and there was added that day about 3,000 souls. That's what happens when we keep the main message the main thing. We could strategize and scheme all day long, but the power for salvation, the power for growth is in the message itself. So how do we keep it the main thing? First of all, we keep it clear. We just keep it clear. We want to know what the gospel message is. Christ, the sinless Son of God, crucified for sinners, risen again for life so that all who trust him find salvation forever with him. We must know it. We must make sure our kids know it and our teens know it. We must remind ourselves of it. We must remind each other of it. We must keep it clear, and we must keep it central. We're not going to move past the gospel to something else. The gospel's not the entry point, and then we move on to the good stuff. No, the gospel is from beginning to end. It is the foundation for everything. It is the most basic thing we have. And then we keep it not just clear and central. We keep it confidently. We're going to build our lives and build our church on this message. One of the things that I love about uh, the Lord of the Rings books or, or movies is the simplicity of Frodo's task. If you haven't read those or seen those movies, you, uh, Frodo is uh, the hobbit who must travel to the other end of Middle-earth and, and throw this, this ring um, into a mountain volcano, basically. It must be destroyed. If it's not destroyed, then evil will prevail and dominate the world. And so we must make this long, dangerous, difficult journey. And one of the things that strikes me about that is that the kind of things we tend to worry and get anxious about just don't seem to really register much with him, right? You never see Frodo working his way along, running from orcs, going, I don't think my shirt and pants match, you know? Um, How come you always have nicer stuff than me? It's just a remarkable simplicity. Constant danger, there's no choice. This task must be accomplished. I have difficulty with this person. This task must be accomplished. He doesn't get caught up in trivial things because there's this one task, this one thing that must be done. It is his main thing. And the salvation, the, the, the existence of goodness and right in Middle Earth depends on him accomplishing it. You know, a church that's fixed on the gospel, focused on the gospel, starts to get that kind of simplicity. This is what we're about. This is our main thing. We probably don't need to argue about this dumb, this little thing. We'll try to work it out, but that's not our main thing. And I'm going to get all caught up in this because that's not our main thing. We've got a main thing. A world that needs to hear this message for whom life, eternal life and death hangs in the balance. So we just need to share and live the message. We don't need to provide extra wisdom. We can't provide extra power. God uses this message when we keep the main message, the main thing. If we keep it clearly, 
We keep it centrally and we keep it confidently against all discouragement and opposition. Listen, we need that as a church. We, we need that as individuals too. We need to keep the gospel in front of us all the time. There are out in the seats there some cards. I don't know if there's enough for everyone to grab one or not, but there are some cards, and on the back side, I've put just the text of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm not going to take time this morning to read that, but we see in that passage the, the progression. It begins, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. We, we need to be reminded of this all the time. In fact, this is what I encourage you to do. I encourage you to take one of those and just stick it in your Bible this week. And, and I would encourage you to start your day rehearsing what God has done in your life if you're a follower of Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Without God, without hope in the world, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with him. By grace we have been saved. And it finishes in verse 10. And we were created for this, uh, created for good works that God has prepared for us. Let me encourage you to grab one of those cards. Read it every morning. Keep it for start your day reminding yourself from God's word how we need to keep the main message the main thing. This is how we go back to basics. We start by keeping our main message our main thing. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful this morning that you have given us this message, that you've not kept it a secret. You've not made it hard to find. We don't have to go on some quest and overturn heaven and earth to find out this, but rather you've sent your son to us and you revealed this good news to us so that we might know you and love you and find life in you. Father, we are, I am often distracted from the main thing, but we need to go back to basics Help us to keep this main message the main thing. Father, there may be somebody here this morning who's never really, maybe never heard, maybe never really understood, maybe just never really embraced this message, this good gospel news that Christ has died for sinners. Oh, I pray this morning, right now, they would turn to you in humble faith, acknowledge you as Lord, receive you as Savior, commit themselves to you. Father, I pray as a church we would be laser-focused on this message, sharing this message, living this message. I pray that we would keep it clear, that we'd keep it confidently, that we would keep it central to who we are as a church. I pray in Jesus' name.